Well, I figure if you're going to call me the Reverend Mark Price, I ought to look the part. So uh, I'm doing my best representing here. Uh, well, it's good again to welcome not only those of you who are in the room, but uh, those who are joining us live, uh, listening and watching on the web. Glad to have you be a part of worship today. It was 1990 years ago, give or take one year, that a total unknown by the name of Jesus, we don't know much about him in the first 30 years of his life other than he was probably a carpenter, but he lived in the most obscure mountain village of Nazareth up in the northern part of Israel. He went public at the age of 30. He began to do things that the world had never seen before. He began to heal and to cast out demons and to preach as no one had ever preached before. His preaching and teaching and all the miracles that accompanied that attracted a crowd. And almost immediately, he began to invite people from out of the crowd to come and be a part of what he was doing. And so he made this very simple invitation, which has been the title of this series, Come Follow Me. The interesting thing about that invitation is who he offered it to. He offered it to unbelieving people, people who were not at all convinced that he was the Son of God. They didn't believe that he was divine, not, a, not yet. They didn't know if he was the Messiah. They didn't know what they believed about him. And they were broken people. They were sinful people. They were, they were many of them, just really messed up people. A number of them demon-possessed. I mean, it was really a rough crowd. And this is who Jesus invited to follow him, unbelieving, sinful people. Well, here we are 2,000 years later, and the same invitation is being issued. We look back and we see that one life, which, by the way, he only ministered publicly for three and a half years before he was murdered. How extraordinary is that? That far and away, the most significant history-changing uh, most impactful figure ever to live only really lived publicly for three and a half years. And the movement that he began is actually still gaining momentum 2,000 years later. How, how jacked should we be about that? Still gaining strength, way more than 2 billion followers today and growing rapidly. And the invitation has never changed. He still invites people who do not believe he invites people who are full of doubts and questions, uncertainty about the existence of God, uncertainty about the deity of Jesus, uncertainty about the Bible. He invites people who are full of those kinds of doubts and who don't have faith to come and follow. He invites people who are just so broken and messed up by sin to come and follow. And in fact, he never says, get your act together, get your belief system straight, and then you can come be a part of me. His invitation has always been, just as you are, Come and follow. Come and be a part of what I'm doing. And let me do in your life what I've done in so many other lives. But right now, you just come and follow. Last week, we asked the question, so what's the payoff? If I follow, what do I get in return? And what we found is that as we really strip away all the other stuff that we know and believe and just get back to, okay, what did Jesus say about that? that Jesus' answer to that question is a bit of a surprise. The biggest surprise being what he didn't say in answer to the question of what's the payoff? What am I going to get? That he didn't say, hey, come and follow me and you get to go to heaven. Didn't say that. Thankfully, we do get to go to heaven, but Jesus didn't advertise that as the payoff. He didn't say, come follow me and I'll make you a better person, though following Jesus does accomplish that. And he didn't say, come follow me and I'll give you a more pain-free, more problem-free life. He certainly did not say that. What Jesus offered seldom gets advertised. Again and again, what he offered was, you come follow me, and it's not that I'm going to erase and eliminate your problems and your pain, but in the midst of your difficulty and pain, I'm going to give you a faith that's going to allow you to live without fear. You're going to be able to follow me consistently without being hampered by fear and, and just locked into place by that. Because I'm going to build into you the certainty that I love you and that I am with you and that you do know me. So this week, we get to ask a new question. It's the one you've been dying to ask. If I accept the invitation to come and follow, well, what should I wear?
But what's the question that's always going to follow later on? Oh, wait a minute. I forgot to ask. What's everybody going to wear? What should we wear to this thing? Because the last thing we want to do is come and we're not wearing the right stuff. Well, the truth of the matter is what you wear actually communicates a lot about you. I mean, for instance, if I showed up today, instead of wearing coat and tie, if I were in a green jersey with white numerals and uh, yellow trim around that, had a big uh, block of cheese on my head in the shape of a triangle, what would that tell you about me? Green Bay Packers fan. If I showed up today wearing crimson and white and a houndstooth hat, what would that tell you about me? That I'm an Alabama fan. If I showed up today wearing orange and blue with a big AU cap on my head, what would that tell you about me? That I've lost my mind. I'm kidding. Just kidding. Y'all know me. That would mean that I've had a head injury or something. But thank you. Thank you. But it goes way beyond being a follower of a team. In religious circles, what we wear often communicates a lot about us. I mean, think about this. If a woman comes in today and she's wearing the, the robes, and the garments that completely cover the head and the face and only eyes, the eyes are showing and it covers her all the way to the floor, you're immediately going to assume that she belongs to what faith? That's right. You're going to assume she's a part of Islam. If you see someone and he's wearing a toga that's kind of that light orange salmon-y kind of color and has a shaved head, you're going to assume he's a priest from what religious group? Buddhist priest. If you see a man, this one's not going to be as common here, but you've seen the pictures. If you see a man, usually they have beards and, and most frequently it's going to be guys with you know, the tan skin. But who has the big turban on, the kind that's kind of got the, like the two rounded things here and it comes down and you know covers the ears, looks sort of like a snake charmer. You can assume he belongs to... He's a, a Sikh. That's, you know, that's what the Sikhs will normally wear. It's actually the fifth largest religion in the world now. Um, if you see someone... We'll bring this a little closer to home. If you see someone... Uh, maybe this will help. If you see a pair of guys and they're in black slacks white button-down shirts with no ties and they have plastic name badges attached at the pockets, what can you assume about them? Ah, LDS, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Mormons have come to town. Mormon missionaries are coming down your street. How'd you know that? What they wore gave it away. So here's the question. A follower of Jesus. What is he or she supposed to wear? Well, that seems like a really silly question. What does it matter what you wear? I thought that. I thought that for a long time. And then I actually got hired on the staffs of a couple of different large churches. Oh, my goodness. Was I naive? Now, I knew these were large and well-established traditional churches, each of the ones that I was hired at. And um, started out just kind of going along with the crowd. I'm a young man, fresh out of seminary, so everybody else wears a suit. So I put on a coat and tie and go to church. But... Uh, when I moved to this area, the second church that I served that was sort of similar size and sort of dress up on Sunday morning, all the other ministers, this is what they wore. So I just followed suit, no pun intended. And um, a neat thing happened when I went on the very first uh, staff retreat once I moved down here. I always enjoy staff retreats. You step back and really have a chance to re-examine what we're doing. How do we reach people? How do we really make disciples? And so we're wrestling with all those questions. And one of the things came up, the question of how do we do a better job of helping people who are out there in the world, who have no connection to the church, feel at home when they come to church? And one of the things that we easily identified is, for starters, it feels like there's a dress code here. When you look around at the people who are in leadership and all the guys who do their stuff on stage, they're all dressed. Actually, I'd be dressed down for that because I'm not, you know, in a blazer and khakis. I'm not in a suit. We always would be in, in a suit, really, you know, dressed to the nines. And it's like, you know, people don't even work wearing this as business attire hardly down here. There aren't many people who wear a coat and tie to work anymore in this area. It's like these are your Sunday clothes, and people who don't go to church don't have Sunday clothes. It just feels like they don't fit at any level. And we say, well, one of the easiest things we could do is eliminate some of this and just try and dress kind of neutrally. Don't try and make some statement. Just, just lose that. So we made an agreement that day. The whole staff did. Five ministers there. We're like, you know what? From this point on, nobody... I mean, people can dress any way they want to, but the staff... No more coats and ties. We'll just dress as neutrally as we can so that 
we just kind of blend in and try and make it comfortable for anybody new coming in to not feel like, oh my goodness, I didn't dress appropriately for this. So, you know, that Sunday morning, it was a great thing to ditch the coat. Oh, what a nice feeling. So, you know, didn't bother with the coat that morning. And in fact, went, went so far as to ditch the tie as well. So, uh, came in on Sunday morning, dressed much like I am now. And a pressed pair of khakis and a button-down shirt, nicely pressed. I go in, bump into the children's pastor. He's dressed like I am, just very, very neutral, casual attire. We're like, man, isn't this cool? Coming to church and not having to dress up. And then we get into worship, and it's like, oh, wait a minute. What happened? The other three pastors come out, and they take the stage. Senior pastor, his usual blue suit and tie. Minister of music, same deal. Minister of Education, same field. And the children's pastor and I were looking at each other going, what happened to our big patch? We're all in. Never wear a suit again. That conversation from that staff retreat never, ever came up again. From that Sunday forward, three guys wore suits and ties every Sunday and two didn't. And I'm like, whatever, no big deal. I guess they thought about it and said, and some people in the church are going to get mad. So we won't we won't go down that road. Well, I thought it wasn't a big deal. Other than, you know, this is it's easier to relate to students and to people like this. So I was good with that. Well, not too long after that, we lost our pastor. And what I didn't understand as a young minister was there are people in the church who wait for moments like that when there's not a pastor around to suddenly jump into the vacuum to be in control. And man, immediately I started having people get in my face and tell me I better straighten up and start wearing the right kind of clothes to church. And I'm like. Seriously? What is that? You know, the right kind of clothes to church. I even had one lady who came by my office when I was out and dropped off a stack of, of coats from the early 70s. Her, her late husband had left behind. Oh, they were beautiful. I mean, one of them was like a light burgundy. One was kind of a sky blue. And the, the cut of these things, it would only look appropriate if you had a collar that was out to about here and a tie about this wide to go with it. But it came with a nice little note attached. Now you have to bear in mind, I, you know, I'm not wearing a coat and tie to church, but I'm, I'm coming in pressed and, you know, dressed nicely. Every, this note attached that's, that says, you know, she's so offended at the terrible example that I'm setting for the teenagers of our church and that she cannot stand by idly and watch me continue to set such a bad example, leading our teenagers astray with, with what I wear. And in case the problem is that I can't afford appropriate clothes to wear to church, she is passing on her dead husband's suit coats to make sure that from now on I am without excuse to dress as I should dress when I go in church. And I'm like, are you serious? Is this a joke? It was not a joke. As I found out, it really was not a joke because then I got the opportunity in the absence of a pastor there to preach a number of times. And I made the, the critical error of preaching without a coat on and a time or two for preaching with an open collar. And people were infuriated. I got called before one of the leading committees of the church to just straighten me out. You know, who were like, what is it going to take to get you to wear the, the right clothes in church? I mean, it was that, that blunt. You know, when we call a pastor, are you going to listen when he tells you to put on a coat and tie like you're supposed to? Finally, it culminated by them sending their lead dog to just confront me in the office one day and say, all right, this is it. You will never again be allowed on the platform in the worship center unless you're wearing a coat and tie. So don't think you're even so much as standing up to give an announcement unless you have on a suit, which at that point I was able to go, OK, not a problem. I didn't lose anything on the platform. I won't be up there looking for anything. And so I did not mount the platform until the day that I resigned to say, I'm leaving to go answer God's call for the next assignment that he has for me, which was to start a church where it really didn't matter what you wore to church, that you came to honor Christ and to love people and to worship him and that you just dressed in whatever way was going to be most comfortable for you to worship. All of that's a long story to say. When you ask the question, what should a follower of Jesus wear? We're going to look at the scriptures to find an answer that goes way beyond what you put on this morning. But don't get lost in, in realizing that there are a lot of people who as Christians think that it matters a lot 
what you wear today. It's our, actually our small group leaders had a little bit of fun today with with what they wore. I told them Tuesday night when I was preaching. So we've got, you know, we had Jim in the first service wearing his suit and tie, and we've got Tom here today wearing his Rick Warren Rick Warren Hawaiian flowery shirt and uh, jeans in church. Man, what are you? What's the world coming to when Tom Lanahan is in jeans here today? But uh, just having a little fun with that today. Well, the person in the Bible who answers the question in a real pointed way, what's appropriate for a Christian to wear, was the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul was not one of the original followers of Jesus. He says he was an apostle sort of abnormally born because he got tacked on after the fact. He wasn't one of the twelve, but he knew the teachings of Jesus. It was as though he knew Jesus in a very firsthand kind of way because he lived in the same time frame and he learned directly under those who spent so much time with Jesus And so Paul ended up writing a number of letters, 13 of of the books of the New Testament, a large portion of the New Testament. And in one of those, he really spelled out what we ought to wear as believers, that people could look at us and go, that's a follower of Jesus. I can tell by looking. He or she is a follower of Jesus. Now, of all the things that Paul wrote about, he's he's taking the teachings of Jesus and he's just putting them in a very simplified, very specific, concrete, understandable form so that we know what to do with that. And of all the teachings of Jesus that Paul expounded on, probably the one that he leveraged the most, which was really the the central message of Jesus, is found in John 13. If you've got your Bibles and want to turn there with me, feel free to, or it's in your outline as well. John 13, where Jesus is, it's on the night that he's betrayed, it's Thursday night of Holy Week, And it's that long discourse that John records, John 13 to 17. And in the course of that, Jesus is going to lay down what matters most. And he has just said in the preceding verse to to his closest followers, hey, I'm about to go where you can't follow. That's pretty disturbing for a follower of Jesus to hear where I'm going, you can't follow. And then he says, a new command that I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. You just have to love Peter and how he just never liked for words, even when he didn't have a clue what to say. Here Jesus is coming down to the heart of the matter. This is such a heavy, weighty night. Nothing's going to be the same after tonight. And Jesus is going, okay, guys, this is what I have been trying to get you to understand. I'm about to give you the main thing. Now, this is it. Love one another. Love each other the way that I have loved you. And Peter goes, okay, yeah, but where did you say you're going? Seriously, I just told you the most important thing. Yeah, but you said something about you were going somewhere. Where'd you say you were going? Okay, let me try this again. This is how everybody's supposed to know you. The way you love each other is the way that I've loved you. I know, but you said something about going somewhere. Where was that? What Jesus is saying is this. When people look at you, I want them to immediately see there's something different. Because you have this way of relating to people where you love them in exactly the same way that I reached out to you and love you from the moment that I met you. Like, Matthew, do you remember? Do you remember what it was like that day? You were at your tax collector's booth. And when I came along, it was so obvious from the way that people were were behaving around you and how they reacted to you. They hated you. In fact, to be real honest, these other guys who were already following me. They couldn't stand the fact that I was walking over to talk to you and they about fell out when I invited you to come and follow. But do you remember how I looked at you and even with all of the junk in your life and knowing that you were a traitor and you were despised by the people, I just loved you. And I wanted to get to know you better and I just immediately said, hey, come on. Come spend time with me. In fact, what are you doing tonight? Having a party at your house? Can I come? Because I want to spend that time with you. That is how I want you to love other people. Hey, Nathaniel, you remember the day that you and I first bumped into each other? The day you first heard about me? Yeah, you were under the tree. You remember that day? And when you heard about me, do you remember how you rolled your eyes and said, Really? Nazareth? Galilee? Does anything, does anybody good ever come out of that part of the country? Oh, yeah, you were busting on me and my family and everybody that I love. And do you remember how I responded to that? 
I didn't say something ugly back. I didn't get mad. I didn't roll my eyes. I just loved you. And I said, I want you. I, I, I know there is no guile. There is no deception in you, Nathaniel. And I actually like that about you. Come on. I want to get to know you. Come spend time with me. This, this is the main thing. Loving people like that, not looking at them and going, you know, if you would just straighten this up, if you'd change this, if you'd stop lying, if you'd if you'd behave better, if you'd start believing, if you'd go to church, if you'd pull up your pants, if you'd whatever, I might like you. He said, no, what I want to mark you is this thing, loving people the way that you've been loved by me. Now, what's so significant about this, part of what's so significant is realizing that the gravitational pull of all religions is toward rule-keeping and rituals rather than relationships. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because this is true for all religions, including Christianity. Do you know what I mean when I say the gravitational pull? it's, It's like there's a... Uh, an unseen force that we just, when we don't work at it, that we'll always fall back down to this kind of least common denominator. And that is a set of rules, a set of rituals, and quite honestly, a real ugly way of treating other people. All religion migrates in this direction. You see it all the time. It's just easier for us to do religion that way. You know, if I just have a list to live by, a checklist, I do this, this, and this, and I make sure I don't ever do this, this, and this. I don't watch these movies. I don't listen to this music. I don't use this language. I don't, don't, don't. I do, do, do. Well, sometimes I, I, I do what I should, but I ask forgiveness, and I feel real sorry every time I do that, so that makes it okay. But why do we like that kind of religion? Do you want to know why? Because it accomplishes a couple of things for us big time. One, it gives me a reason to feel like God should love me. Now I'm right with God because I did the stuff that God expected and God likes people like me. So I get my checklist done and I have reason to be right with God and I can feel good about that. But there's another reason that feels even better. When I do my checklist, it gives me a reason to be able to hate you and be justified for it. Well, not you personally, but those people out there. Those people who don't look like us. They don't believe what we believe. They don't behave the way that we behave. Have you seen the way that they dress? Have you heard the language that they use? The movies that they go to? The stuff they're into? The booze that they drink? The, the way that they you know, have sex with all kinds of people, swingers? Just whatever it is that we want to bash. Now we can bash it because they're bad and we're not. Because we've got a set of religious rules and we keep the rules. And when we don't, we ask for forgiveness. And so we're good with God, and they are not wicked, wicked people out there. Hell was made for them. And so now, we not only can feel good about ourselves and feel okay with God, we have a reason for God to like us and a reason that we can mistreat those people out there. Now, I know you never think of your faith in those terms. But a lot of people live out their faith by those terms. And here's what Jesus was saying. I'll never settle for that. I'll never settle for gravity setting in and allowing this movement that I've begun that's going to change the world to let it just sort of settle back in to what all religions want to settle back toward. And that is, it's a list of rituals. It's how we do what we do. It's a set of beliefs. It's a set of rules as to what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. And all these define us and they separate us from the bad old world out there that we have to be careful to stay away from. Because we don't want those people out there rubbing off on us. We might become like them. And Jesus is saying, nope, that is not at all what I've come to do. Ultimately, when you get to the heart of it, religion typically migrates toward mistreating people. And some of you know the reality of that. Because you've experienced Christianity that became a religion where gravity has set in. For some of you here today, and for others who are watching online, some of you, the reason that you're watching online 
is because you're still so scarred and damaged by what some Christians did to you. Some of you in here have been so damaged by what Christians did to you that you left church for a season. I mean, don't feel any shame in that. It's probably the majority of who's in this room. We won't ask for a show of hands, but if I said, how many of you went through some season of your life you didn't go to church? And it wasn't so much because you decided to chase the ways of the world as it was you were so sick of how church people behaved and treated you. Be a bunch of hands raised. The truth of the matter is, there are lots of people who, in the name of Jesus, mistreat the very people that Jesus died for. How's that? How's that for stupid? In the name of Jesus, I reject you. Who Jesus died for. Let's tell you a little secret about that. I don't think Jesus is crazy about people who reject the people he died for. In fact, those are the only people I see that Jesus didn't have any use for in the Bible. And I see that a lot. You know, Jesus came for anyone. Anyone in need. Jesus loved any and everyone. But there was one group of people that he just doesn't ever sound very loving toward. In fact, he sounds hard. He sounds mad. And guess who it's toward? Religious people who mistreated others in the name of their religion. The Pharisees. The Sadducees. Jesus showed so much tenderness, kindness, compassion to any and everybody, every broken, fouled up person, but to the religious crowd who said, we have got the rules, we follow the rules, we are professional religious people. If you've got a question about how to live, see us, because we are experts on it. And to them, Jesus said, you bunch of whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look clean and pretty, but on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones. And that was just the beginning. That's pretty warm and fuzzy, isn't it? Yikes. Jesus is making it clear. That doesn't have anything to do with me. Mistreating people in the name of religion doesn't have anything to do with me. Loving others who don't deserve to be loved said, that's how I want you to be marked. Another point that I want you to consider about this is it's always easy to confuse discipline with discipleship. And those two words sound like they belong together. Discipline, discipleship, they've got the same root word. Remember this, discipleship is just a fancy word for followship. A follower of Jesus is a disciple of Jesus, somebody who learns and, and follows the example of Jesus. It's much easier to follow the Christian disciplines than it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? It's not easy to follow the Christian disciplines. Those take discipline, but you know what I'm talking about when I say the disciplines, don't you? There are a bunch of them, but it's things like Scripture reading, Scripture memorization, prayer, worship, attending church, being connected to the body like this. Following disciplines is easy to confuse with being a disciple. And man, is there a big difference. Now, don't get me wrong. All the disciplines that I just named, those are good things for us to do. Disciples of Jesus, those would be things that you expect them to do. But don't ever get confused about this. You can do the disciplines and be a far cry from being a disciple of Jesus. And you've met a bunch of those people, haven't you? I have. I have known plenty of people. They were at church every time the doors were open. They read their Bible. They could quote the Bible. They said their prayers. They wore their religious robes every Sunday. They were on the committee. They've taught the class. They do all the disciplines. And they're mean as snakes. Some of the meanest people I've ever known go to church every Sunday. Some of the most underhanded unkind people I've ever known were deacons of the church. It's just the way it works. Just being religious can teach you to be a very disciplined person. And some of us, unfortunately, we got so hurt by people like that. Some of you got so hurt by people like that. that They told you, either to your face or behind your back, making sure that you found out what they said. We don't want you. We don't want people like you around 
And the reason that we don't want you is because of how God feels about you, because God hates divorce. And so we translate that just a little bit over and say, that means God hates divorced people. And by the way, we heard you've got a divorce in your past. So rest assured, we don't need people like you around here. You sure don't need to be leading anything in this church. God hates adultery. So if you've ever had a relationship outside of marriage, God hates you and we do too. Heaven knows God hates those gay people. So if you've got any kind of same-sex attraction, we really hate you. You're an abomination unto God. You've got to shake your head when you say abomination. <laughs> and we just go on down the line. Hate, 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 double hate. You know, that's like the Grinch, you know, in that scene. Hate, 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 double hate. Loathe entirely. <laughs> this is the Christian message. But we know the Bible and we go to church. And honestly, when you've encountered that, it's really easy to just make the assumption, oh, this is just how Christians are. No, this is this is how religious people are. This is how broken humans are when all they have is religion. There's great news in the middle of all that dysfunction. There's this wonderful reality that there is something beyond religion that exists. It really exists where people of a very real faith have a relationship with the living person of Jesus. And Jesus has nothing to do with that. He has nothing to do with being mean and trying to bash the world. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we're soft on sin. That we're Oh, so you just do it. You just live in the old way that you want to live and Jesus doesn't care. That's not the message at all. Jesus is the picture of perfection and holiness. But Jesus also understood that if he waited for us to clean up our act before we come to him, then he has a followership of zero. He loves people where they are and invites them to come and be a part of what he's doing. And then he transforms us from the inside. Well, there's a big difference between that and having to change because people shook their finger in your face and said, we really don't need people like you around here. God does not like people who do what you do. It's like, really? Did I need you telling me that? First of all, I've got the Holy Spirit on the inside convicting the daylights out of me every time I screw up. And that's hammering me pretty well right there. I need that. And on top of that, I've got the accuser of the brethren, the enemy, his demonic forces, who are constantly saying, you don't belong to God. You don't look anything like his son. He wouldn't save and love and forgive somebody who fouls up the way that you do. In the midst of all that, do you think I really need you telling me how jacked up I am? I pretty well get that. I don't need to go to church to have that reinforced. Well, some of us got that reinforced at church, didn't we? If you did, don't say amen. Say, oh, me. Yeah, me too. Me too. Jesus was determined. He wasn't going to start something that was just about a bunch of disciplines. That he wanted followers who really made relationships the center of things. Well... That was the message, and that was what he left the disciples with on the last time that he got to, to speak to them before the arrest in the garden and then the cross the next day. So 22 years have passed. We move forward in time. And one of the extraordinary things that has happened is what has gone on in the, in the life of Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul becomes one of the leading characters of the New Testament. You, you don't get to spend a lot of time getting to know him as Saul, but... Suffice it to say, he is like the prime example of what religion will do to a person. He was super religious. He had spent his whole life religious. He was a Pharisee. I mean, he is like, you know, if he were the, the religious equivalent of somebody in the military, he would have had, you know, all the stripes on his sleeve or all the stars on his collar. He is way up the line. Super Pharisee, knows all the rules. He is intense. And, I mean, he says of himself... Listen, I went out and I hunted down Christians. I went city to city to root them out, to find where they were, to have them arrested, and if possible, have them beaten or killed. When the first Christian was ever martyred, I was there. I was cheering it on. I mean, okay, this guy is a picture of religion, right? Religion gave him an excuse to mistreat others. And so that's what he did. In the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're arresting you. We're locking you up. I mean. In the name of the one true God. That's what he was doing. Because religion gives you an excuse to hate people who aren't just like you. That's what Paul had been doing when his name was Saul. 
But then this crazy thing happened. In the middle of doing this, he's on a journey to another city to do this again. When along the way, he bumps into Jesus. Oh, man. Jesus will mess you up. He, he, will, he will take religion and turn it upside down. And that's what he did. You remember what Jesus said on, on, when he encountered Saul there on the road? Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Why do you kick against the goads? And Saul's like, do what? On that day, his life was changed. It was the defining moment for him. He went from being a religious man who hated and mistreated everyone who was a follower of Jesus to suddenly himself becoming a follower of Jesus. Up until that time, he lived to destroy the church. From that day forward, for the rest of his life, he planted and nurtured churches. That's a pretty important day. So Paul has now spent years going out and explaining to others about the one that he had despised. And it's ironic in a sad way what would happen initially each town that he would go into. Paul would follow the same routine. He would go to where the religious people gathered. He would go to where the, he was Jewish. He would go to where the Jewish people would gather for synagogue for their time of worship. And he would stand up and explain, here's what the scriptures that you've been taught all of your life are pointing toward. There are over 300 prophecies, and they're all pointing toward the arrival of the Messiah. He has come. We know him. His name is Jesus. This is how he lived. This is what he taught. This is how he died, and he rose from the dead. This is his message. And everywhere he went in the synagogues, what he found was religious people who hated him because of his message. Sometimes they beat him up. Sometimes they just ran him out of town. Sometimes they flogged him. And at least once they stoned him until he was unconscious and they thought he was dead. Town after town after town. I mean, you'd think the guy would learn after a while. Stay away from those religious people. They're bad. But he kept going back in, going back in. And what would happen in town after town is he would do this with the religious crowd. And they'd just beat the crud out of him and, you know, run him out of town or leave him for dead. And then he'd wake up or, you know, sneak back into town. And there'd always be this little handful of people. It wouldn't be the core religious crowd, but it would be those who've like been abused by the religious crowd who are like, hey, wait a minute. That actually sounded like something I could buy into. I mean, I don't want their junk. I, I tried that and I don't want to be what they are. I don't want what they've got. If that's a disease, I don't want to catch it. But this guy you're talking about, Jesus, and the teachings that you said... That where it's just all about loving God and loving people. I mean, there's something about this that makes sense. And he rose from the dead? What's that about? I want to hear more. So he'd gather with these tiny little groups of people. They'd usually meet like on the edge of town or out by the river or whatever. And he'd explain about Jesus and they'd wind up going, yes. Our hearts really connect with that. We believe the message that you're saying. They would turn to Christ and a new church would be birthed right there. It happened again and again and again. All around the eastern and northern realm of the Mediterranean. And in countless cities, Paul planted new little churches, just like I've just described. Beaten by the religious people, the outsiders winding up by being the ones who would buy in. And so he ended up taking multiple journeys where he would go back through planting additional churches. But, but the second, third, fourth journeys, he would go back and revisit the churches that he had been to before. And guess what he found? Found a lot of encouraging stuff, but he also found that in many of these churches that given enough time, gravity would start to set in. And some of the same things that happen in other places were happening in the churches that he planted. That some of the same kinds of habits that, you know what, we've got our own traditions and we've got our own set of rules that those things would set in. And oh, by the way. Can I just say to us at Freedom, where we celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ, and we're, okay, we're not going to believe for a minute that a suit and tie makes us any more pleasing to God, and rah, rah, for us. We need to understand, gravity will affect us too. And we have to constantly stay centered on Christ and what He taught, or gravity will turn us into a group with just a different set of rules and a different set of traditions. 
I mean, you realize we can take just as much pride in going, "Uh uh-huh, that's right. We we don't believe for a minute that what we wear makes us right with God. So we come in our flip-flops and shorts and Hawaiian flowery shirts. And that that shows we're closer to Jesus than those people the First Baptist are because we understand that it's not about this. You know what? That can become our own norm. That can become our own rule. Just understand, we all stand in danger of letting something become a rule or a ritual when it's all about the relationship with Christ and how we relate to others. So Paul ended up having to write these letters back to the churches, constantly reminding them of the central idea. Hey, you're supposed to be known for how you love one another. And so one of the places that he did that was the church in Colossae. I won't go into the background about Colossae, but it's a major city that's not much of a city now. The church that he planted there went strong and did well, but they started getting off course in the same regard. And so he wrote back to them and he fleshed out the teaching from John 13 of Jesus. And he just reminded them, hey, don't forget, it's time to go back to the basics and remember what followers of Jesus wear, how they behave. And so he used that analogy of what you need to put on, how you need to clothe yourselves. If you've got your Bibles and want to turn with me to Colossians 3, verse 12, or just look in your outlines, Paul said this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, put on this, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I want to take just a moment and flesh out those five words for you because this becomes for us a really clear picture of what it means to love as Jesus has loved us. And he starts with, Compassion. The word there in the Greek, it's not one word, it's, it's two words. And it means, um, if you just translate it word for word, it just says bowels of compassion. It means literally to love with all of your bowels. There's a lovely phrase, isn't it? Guys, I suggest you try this on your, your wife or your sweetheart the next time you go out. Honey, I just love you with all of my bowels. That's, that's special. You may go, what in the world? Well, it's, it's not as freaky as it sounds. We still would, you know, we love to use the terminology, I love you with all my heart. I feel it in my heart. And we think in terms of the seat of emotion being the heart. In the ancient world, they, they thought of it more in terms of your gut. They would say literally your bowels. But we haven't lost that concept. You know, we'll say, man, I just have this gut feeling. I just, I just feel something in my gut. That actually probably comes closer to what we feel and experience than, than the heart. Because when you feel things deeply, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to process it down there. I mean, if I'm uptight or I'm, I'm upset for someone or about something or someone... I tend to feel it down in my gut. I mean, like two and a half weeks ago, we got the news about my dad. Dad, who's always been healthy and strong. And then we get the news there's something really wrong. And they found something with his heart. And now we need to do a heart cath. And we're like, okay, it's not going to be anything serious. And then they say, oh, the heart cath didn't go well. Four or five major blockages. Definitely going to have to open heart surgery. Surgeon says he wants all the family here ASAP. Doesn't want to open him up until he can see all the family face to face. And in that moment... I didn't feel something here. I felt it here. Just that, oh. I just, I felt his pain in that moment. I felt his stress. I felt that weight in my gut. Compassion is choosing to share in the hurts of others. It's choosing not to step back, not to shield yourself. It's choosing to let your gut feel what somebody else is feeling. And to relate to them out of that. Not to, not to stand back and say, well, if you had taken better care of yourself, if you had eaten like you were supposed to eat, if you had taken your cholesterol medicine, it's, it's choosing not to go, well, I told you, if you had listened to me, it's your own fault. You got yourself in this mess. You did this to yourself. It's choosing not to go down any of those roads and instead to share in the hurts and struggles of another when they're hurting and struggling. That's compassion. Kindness. Kindness is lending your strength to someone else. It's a great definition, isn't it? Kindness. When somebody else is in a position that they don't have the strength to do what they need to do, it's you loaning them that strength. Now, that comes in a lot of different forms. When someone is sick... Or someone has gone through a surgery or they've had a baby. It's not hard to figure out what kindness looks like. 
kindness is lending them your strength. I didn't just have surgery or I'm not sick. So, you know what? I can come over and mow your yard. I have the strength to mow mine. I have the strength to mow yours while you don't. You know, I, I have the strength to whatever, to take care of your kids for you. To, to, you don't, you're not physically well or you're, you're tied up with just the grief and taking care of a family while you're grieving the loss of a loved one. So, you know what? You don't need to, to have to exert the energy and thought to cook. So I have the strength to do that. I can loan you my strength in that time. Sometimes loaning your strength means simply when a person is going through a really dark black season, They've experienced terrible loss. And all they feel is pain, uncertainty. They're questioning God. How could a loving God allow this to happen? And you just come alongside them. You don't fix them. You don't come with all the answers. But you simply loan them your strength in that time. They don't feel like they can make it through the next hour, much less the next day and the next year. And you just come alongside them and just loan them your strength. Do you know sometimes you can loan someone else your faith? They're so hurt and empty and just confused, just questioning God and His goodness and His existence. And you just coming along and saying, I don't understand. I don't pretend to have the answers, but I just want to remind you, I love you. I'll be here with you. And God loves you. And, and just by you having faith, and staying close to them, you're, you're lending them your strength and your faith. And that's a big deal. Some of you, you've had somebody else do that for you. When somebody's going through a terrible loss, a terrible breakup, they're going through the nightmare of, of a divorce. And they feel like they're just completely fragile, that, that they just aren't ever going to be normal again. And you just walk in there and just be a friend to them. Your life's going on forward and you just, you lend them some normalcy. You lend them your strength in their season of weakness. That's kindness. Humility. Humility is seeing myself as I really am in relationship to other people and to God. Now, all of these things, they're not just like qualities just that are just out there. These are all things that he's saying in terms of how we relate to other people. And humility... It's me just seeing myself as I really am, as a citizen of humanity, just like all of you. And it's funny how much of the time we're going to run to one or other extreme, both of which miss humility. You know, some of us carry around, we struggle with pride and we have an inflated opinion of ourselves. It's, you know, I can run the fastest, I can jump the highest, I'm the smartest, I did the best on the test, I've, I'm, I'm the biggest success, I've made the most money, I've got the biggest house, I'm blah, 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 I'm the best looking, I've got the best looking wife, I've got, I've got, I've got, you know, just, it's our list of look at me, beat our chest. And so we all know what that looks like, that's pride, mm, doesn't look pretty. And still, a lot of struggle with that. And then we can run to the other extreme, and that's not humility, where it's like, oh, I hate myself, I hate looking in the mirror, I'm so fat. I'm just, you know, my life's so miserable. I'm in debt. Relationships never work out. I just, just hate my life. I don't know why anybody wants to be my friend. Everything's so bad. That's not humility. And it's very unattractive. That's self-hatred. Self-hatred and pride are equally destructive. And equally miserable to be around. Humility is neither. Humility is just recognizing, you know what? I've got strengths and weaknesses. I could look in the mirror and I could say either one. And I could say good things about myself. I could say terrible things about myself. And I could say true things in either direction about me. Humility is not denying the good or the bad. Humility is realizing I'm just like everybody else. There's some good and there's some bad. And all the good things that I could say about me, whatever we want to say, you know, to declare ourselves a success or, or, or whatever, to just go, you know what, none of those things make me any better than anybody else. There's only one thing that makes me special. It's the same thing that makes you special. What's that? That you are loved and chosen by God when you didn't deserve either one. How did Paul start the verse? As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And let's be clear about this. He didn't choose you and love you because you were holy. He chose us and loved us and made us holy when we were rotten. Every one of us. 
And the only thing that made us special was that holy God looked at us, even on our worst day, and said, oh, I choose him. I choose her. I just love them to death. And in fact, I'm going to make them holy. And that's what I'm doing. And he gets to look ahead and see the finished product and love us all the way through as if we had already arrived at that. And when we can see that, when we see ourselves as we really are, that we're all just broken people who share this in common, who just exist together under the wonderful canopy of God's love. Oh, that's good. That's a good place to be. And so now I don't try and impress you with my strengths and I don't try and beat myself up about my weaknesses. I just see, hey, we're on common ground. That's humility, seeing ourselves as we really are. Fourth, gentleness. Gentleness pairs up very well with humility because gentleness is the decision to respond to others in the light of their strengths and weaknesses instead of responding out of my strengths. Does that make sense? Do you know what it looks like when somebody has always got to relate out of their strength? You know what that looks like? I mean, like... When you were in high school, it's, you know, it's the jock that every conversation has got to come back to his accomplishments on the ball field. It's the, you know, the beauty queen who has always somehow got to come back to her appearance and what she's won or whatever. It's the, it's the smart guy who everything's got to come back to him proving that he's smarter than everybody else in the room in every conversation. Always relating out of our strength. No, gentleness is adjusting to the strengths or weaknesses of the person that we're focused on. Gentleness gives me the ability to do this. Gentleness means with the same hand, I can take my fingertip and I can pick up a contact lens. Or I can pick up a 16-pound bowling ball. Both the same hand possessing the same strength. I simply adjust my approach and my touch based on the object or person that I'm reaching out to. Gentleness knows when to reach out like it's a contact lens. And sometimes you're around somebody who's a bowling ball and you know how to adjust your strength to them. I'll give you just a a simple example, maybe a bit of an extreme, but a number of us here are sponsors for World Vision or Compassion International. And so you communicate with your kids. Hopefully you write to them. And and if so, you've been given very clear instructions. I know Compassion does this, that they say when you write your sponsored child, they don't use this terminology, but this is what they're telling you. You gear down and make sure that you do this principle. You be gentle. And and so they get specific in some of what they say. You You don't tell them. About all the big trips that you took and all that you bought your kids for Christmas and all of these things. These are the poorest of the poor in third world countries. They're lucky if they get one meal a day. So when you write, you don't write out of your strength and tell them all the big things that your kids got for Christmas and all the grand places that you're going on vacation and all the the big stuff that they could not begin to relate to and would only from a distance envy or, or feel so pitiful next to No, you gear down and talk to them about the things that they can relate to. They have a family. They have a mom and dad. They have brothers and sisters. Talk to them about your family. You just meet them where they are. You meet them at a level that they can relate to. Don't try and impress them. Which, when somebody tries to impress you, what net effect does that have on you? Makes you feel small, doesn't it? Never makes you feel better. And does it ever really make you feel better about that person? No. We We don't feel more connected because somebody has shown us their strength. We feel more connected when somebody's willing to be vulnerable and share in their weakness with us, when they're willing to gear down. That's gentleness. And then the fifth one, it's the best. Patience. Everybody always says, never pray for patience. You know, God will, essentially the reason they say that, if you listen, it's like, you know, don't pray for patience because God will make all kinds of bad stuff happen to you to teach you patience. I don't buy that. I've heard that my whole life. And I'm like, I think somehow we've misunderstood the whole thing about patience. Patience in simple terms is this. It's just deciding to go the speed of another person. That's not hard to swallow, is it? Patience is being willing and making the decision to go the speed 
of another person. Now, here's the thing that's so fun and practical about that. Every person in this room needs to practice patience, especially the preacher. And God's sense of humor is so on display in that every married person in the room, probably every single one of you is married to somebody who goes a different speed from you. Amen? Don't you know that's a fact? Yeah, somebody said, oh, me. That's real. It's like God just has fun. Oh, watch this. And we're going to put him and her together. Oh, that's going to be a hoot. You know, she's got to be 20 minutes early for everything that she goes to. And he doesn't own a watch. You know, if he gets there and it's not halfway over yet, he's on time. And I'm going to put them together and just watch the fun that they'll have. And they drive each other nuts. Why can't you ever be on time? I thought I was on time. It wasn't over when we got there, was it? And a bunch of you are like, yeah, you're talking about the person that I'm sitting next to. And I've been ticked about it for the last 20 years. You know what patience does? It affects both of you. Because here's the thing we misunderstand about patience. It's like, yeah, slow poke. That patience part was for you. Guess what, Speedy Gonzalez? It was for you, too. It cuts both ways because for the person who's always in a rush and always got to be early and you know always like this, patience means I can gear down and move at the pace of my spouse or my coworker or what. You know, I, I don't have to go out here and sit in the car and constantly be doing this when they're around and honking the horn like we're going to be late for church. You know what? I can gear down to move the, their speed and slow poke. Part of patience is being willing to say, I can go the speed of this person. I can, even though I'm not time conscious, I can choose to be time conscious. I can choose to get up a little earlier. I can choose to get readier. I can choose to be on time. I can choose to go the speed of another. Patience is being willing to adjust your speed and your schedule so that it better fits the other person. Guess what? When two people work at doing that, you don't drive each other crazy. And you actually find yourself appreciating Going, hmm, I know that wasn't your nature. I know you, you've stretched to do that. And you start appreciating that about each other. Well, there's those five. And then he goes on to say in uh, verse 13, Bear with one another, forgiving each other, just as I have forgiven you. It's not giving them the forgiveness that they deserve. It's giving them the forgiveness that they don't deserve. And then he goes on to tell us what the overcoat is. You know, all of this stuff he's saying, clothe yourself in these things. Now, as the overcoat above all these things, put on love, which, you know, binds them all together. Now, at this point, let's just pause and do a reality check. I told the early service crowd, and I, and I think this is true. My concern for what I'm sharing with you today is... Of all the messages that I'll preach in 2014, I think these two things are true. First of all, I think that I will not preach anything this year that more people will agree with than what I preach today. I mean, seriously, like who's going to get to write a nasty email after this message? You know, I can't believe you preached on love. What a terrible thing. You know, can't believe you told, told us to be patient and you know kind. And just, OK, so everybody's going to agree. Pastor gets a thumbs up. That was a positive message and everybody agrees with it. You know, there's no message that will be more universally agreed with than this one. Here's the bad thing. Paired with that is there's probably no message that is more likely to be set aside, forgotten, and ignored that I'll preach this year than this message. And the thing that worries me about that is there's not really anything that I'll preach this year that's more significant in terms of it being central to our faith. I mean, Jesus said, this is it. You want to know what following me looks like? It is about loving people. Our whole faith is summed up in loving God and loving others. And by the way, this is the tangible way that you love God. It's about how you love and treat others. And I am so concerned that the net effect of today is that we all leave and go to lunch here in five or ten minutes. And at Ruby Tuesdays or wherever you go, it's like, you know. That's a good message today. I appreciate that. I wonder what's up next week. What's coming next week? And we don't ever give another thought to what we talked about today. And that would really be tragic because if we don't seek to put into practice what we're talking about today, what we talk about next week probably just doesn't matter a whole lot. 
because if I don't treat you the way that Jesus and Paul are talking about, my faith isn't worth much. So what do we do with this? And another concern that I have about what I'm sharing with you is I think there's a part of us that hears this message and goes, yeah, I know. That's exactly what we expect you to say, Pastor. I mean, that's what pastors are supposed to talk about. The message of Christ. Be nice. Which wasn't exactly his message. But we sort of just clump that together and go, yeah, that was the be nice message. Be nice to people. But that doesn't work really well in the world. All that stuff you're talking about. Kindness and patience and gentleness. It's not a kind and patient and gentle world out there. And if you try and do that in the workplace, it'll eat you alive. It'll grind you up. This message doesn't really work. I mean, if you're going to get somewhere, if you're going to advance yourself, hey, I'm in sales or I work in a large company and you've got to have some drive and you've got to be willing to accept, you know, making some compromises and, and doing some things. If you're going to have a real impact and succeed, this isn't the way to get there. And if that's what part Part of your thinking is in the back of your mind. Can I just ask you to pause and think for a minute about this? Jesus had three and a half years that he lived this out in a public way on earth. And he redefined and reshaped all of human history as a result. Two thousand years later, we haven't recovered from it. We're, we're still reacting to the impact of those three and a half years of living this kind of life. I think it's safe to say there's nobody in the room, there's nobody listening online that anybody 2,000 years from now is going to be quoting, is going to be discussing, is going to be studying and trying to understand. We will be forgotten. You want to know how to have a real impact? Forget living by the world's standards and their way of getting ahead and having an impact and realize this is how you have an impact. That Jesus didn't come just to, you know, make a statement. I mean, Jesus made a difference. We've been talking about how Christians dress. And I saw a picture this week that I thought was so telling. It was a bunch of people in the name of Jesus who were wearing signs, big signboards. And they were all hate signs. You know, God hates you. God hates all these different things. And that's what they were wearing. And I, I look at them and I just think, that's their deal. They want to make a statement. So many times when I hear Christians talking about, you know, well, I just took a stand for this. Sometimes when you listen to what they took a stand for, you realize, no, what you're saying is, I made a statement. And I just want to remind you, Jesus didn't come to make a statement. He came to make a difference. Those two aren't the same. He could have made a statement in 15 minutes and he wouldn't have needed the cross. Jesus came to make a difference. Boycotts and protests and marches and signs make statements. The church lives to make a difference. It's acts of compassion, extraordinary kindness, unusual gentleness, undeserved forgiveness. These make a difference. These make a difference in the places where it matters. I mean, let's start really close to home. Let's, let's start with your marriage or your most significant relationship and the places where there's a rub, there's real friction, there are real problems. Now, you can make a lot of statements. You can prove your point. You can prove you were right. You can prove they were wrong. Always making a statement. But you want to make a difference? You want to make a difference so that it's better? Put on compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Be forgiving. That kind of lifestyle. Loving as Jesus loved us. Not loving when it's deserved. That's what really has an impact. It has an impact on a, on a marriage, on a family, on a community, on a church, on a workplace. That's what makes the biggest difference. So... You know, what do we do with a message like this? Because some of us are like, I won't remember those five things that you just talked about by tomorrow. Yeah, you will. Because I'm going to give you like the dumbest memory tool ever. And I made it up, so go ahead and say it with me. It's lame. Go ahead and tell me it's lame. Okay, now you've said it. Now I'm going to give it to you because it's lame. But you will remember it. We're talking about how to love each other. If, lo if love were to break out on the barnyard, 
you'd see chickens hugging pigs. Okay, can you remember that? Get that picture in your head. Chickens hugging pigs. Chickens hug pigs. C-K-H-G-P. Chickens hug pigs. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. C-K-H-G-P. Some of you didn't follow that because you're doing this at me. C, compassion. K, kindness. Chickens. H, humility. G, gentleness. Hugs. P for patience and pigs. Chickens hugging pigs. Love in the barnyard. Love in the church. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I told you it was lame. I don't care. Some of you tomorrow will wake up and remember this. And here's what I want you to do with it. Yeah, some of you are really having fun with that. Here's what I want you to do with chickens hugging pigs in the morning. When you wake up, I want you to pray that C-K-H-G-P. Lord, today, I want to know you. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Would you help me to put on compassion? Feeling what others people, other people feel, sharing in their hurts. I want to put on kindness. I want to share my strength with others. Help me to see myself as you see me. I want to live with humility. Help me to be a, a gentle person. Help me to gear down to where other people are. And Lord, help me to move at the pace of others. Help me to show patience, especially the people in my home. And help me to forgive the way that you forgive. It's worth rehearsing those things. I look at that list, and I'm just going to be honest. I don't just go, yeah, that's me. That, that's my nature. I look at, you know what I think when I look at that list? I'm like, shoot, I'm type A, I'm driven. I don't have time for patience and gentleness and some of these things. That's just not who I am. But you know what? That's not who Paul was either. I'm driven, but I'm not as driven as Paul. I'm type A, but I'm not as type A as Paul. And Paul learned to live with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, forgiving as he had been forgiven. This is what the Spirit of God does in us. And so as we pray for this, God, what we're asking is that you would fill us with your Spirit to love the way that you love. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? God, we take so much comfort in knowing, first of all, that you loved us and that you've chosen us and that you are making of us holy children that you can take great joy in. Thank you for that. Thank you for your love. Thank you for how you just make the ground at the foot of the cross level, that we are all together a part of humanity in desperate need of you. And I pray that you would teach us to love one another. I, I confess to you, Lord, that there have been so many times in my life when I have failed to love people the way that you've loved me. I ask you to forgive me. Lord, forgive us as a people. Don't let us be a church that just practices a new set of rules and a different form of religion. Would you help us to always be a people who love you and who, out of that relationship, love others the way that you love us. Or we open ourselves up to that. Would you show us people this week that we need to practice these very things with? And by the work of your Spirit in us, would you accomplish these very things? Would you love others through us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.